Amen. You can be seated. And why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9, if you have them. Uh, what we do at Shorebreak is we pick scripture and we make our way through those scriptures. We aren't here just to talk about something I want to talk about or something you want to hear about. We're, we're here to gaze at the glory of God, to open up the scriptures and to see what God has spoken to us. Uh, Merry Christmas. Aloha. How are you guys doing this morning? Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, hopefully you've got most of your Christmas shopping done. Anyone not done with their Christmas shopping at all? Anyone? A few of you? Those are the hands of procrastination. Look around for those who have their hands up. Um, it, hopefully uh, you're able to get that done today. Wrap those gifts tonight and be ready for tomorrow. But just want to remind you that uh, this evening we're actually having a special uh, Christmas Eve worship gathering at 6 p.m. right back here at the church. We're going to be singing songs and praising Jesus and we're going to be finishing up our series on Advent where we're looking at the promises of God. And so I want to invite all of you out to join us. That would be a great time. Uh, by the way, an opportunity to bring someone who doesn't know Jesus or someone who needs to hear the gospel. And so uh, 6 p.m. right here. And then after that worship gathering, we're going to have some baked sugar and goods so we can send you and the cakey home on a sugar high, just as what you need before Christmas morning. And so um, we look forward to seeing you guys hopefully tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, in the meantime, I want to just let you guys know about a special event that we have coming up here at Shorebreak. January 26th and 27th, it, we are going to be doing a marriage seminar right here at Shorebreak, where it's uh, based on the book, off the book, When Sinners Say, I Do. Uh, pastor, author, um, uh, Dave Harvey, who is also the president of the Sojourn Church Planting Network, a network that we as a church are a part of. We're flying Dave Harvey out here to be with us for that weekend, to be in person, to do the marriage conference. I think you guys are going to be very blessed. So one of the things we want to do as we're growing as a church and maturing in Christ, we want to invest in you. We want to invest in our growth. And part of that is taking care of Really, next to Jesus, the second most important and significant relationship that there is, a relationship between a husband and a wife. And so we want you to know uh, that those tickets are on sale now. And so we uh, encourage you guys to get those tickets for the marriage seminar. It's $20 per person. So even if you're single or if you're dating um, or engaged to be married or just going through a season where you think this might be helpful, it, it's really for everyone um, before I engaged uh, my wife, Juliet, I wanted to make sure that I, we were stepping in the right direction. So we went to a, a class on marriage just to make sure that what we knew what we were getting into, that we would have some wisdom moving into it. Plus, I didn't want to drop a few pennies before I bought her that rock. I want to make sure uh, we this is the right thing. And so, um, yeah, just consider it a great opportunity to uh, for you guys to come out. And so, uh, again, cause it's because we care about your marriage. We care about relationships, and we want to see gospel-centered marriages flourish within this church. And so we invite you out to sign up. So you can go home today, do it as a gift, Christmas gift, get it for somebody. We also have someone very generous in our church who is going to be, for those of you who are in a married but in a financially tight place, um, you need the bill to be covered. They're covering up to 10 uh, couples to be a part of that. And so um, if you're worried about finances, don't let that get in the way. God has provided for you through the generosity of others. You know Isaiah 9? You guys there? Hopefully, if you're not there, 
You're never going to make it there, so I'll pray, and uh, we'll get into God's Word. Father God, may in this moment our souls, our minds, and our heart be still. May we know that you are God. That if there's anything we need to be reminded of in this gathering, it's that you are still on the throne and that you are alive. And that even as we look at the promises you make for us in Scripture and we unpack the meaning and the significance of this season we call Christmas, we would walk out of this place more in love with you, more shaped and molded into the image of your son Jesus than we presently are right now. Yes, that by the power of your spirit, you would help me to deliver this word and you would help us to receive this word. We thank you that you've spoken to us, that you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. So now we worship you and we submit beneath your word as our authority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Christians, Christmas isn't just about Christmas. Christmas isn't the means to the end. The manger, the gifts, the trees, the angels, the, the debates of whether or not we should have nativities in public places and not. That's not really for us entirely what Christmas is about. Christmas, as Christians, is about a season of Advent. And Advent is that word meaning the coming of or the arrival of Jesus. Simply what Advent means. That for us as Christians, Christmas is ultimately about Jesus. And we think about the advent of Jesus. The advent of Jesus doesn't really have much significance in your life and in my life if we fail to understand why Jesus would have to come at all. Why would Jesus have to step out of the glorious palace where he sits at the right hand of the Father in paradise to then come to this earth in a feeding trough as a child, as a baby, a, a time of which we celebrate? See, if we don't see that and the significance of that, then we don't understand why he came, then Christmas really isn't going to make sense at all or seem that amazing. And that's why we've dedicated ourselves to looking at this Christmas mini-series of the Advent and even why last week Pastor Leo unwrapped the significance of God making a promise at all. God had to make a promise when you just go back and look at the beginning. Even though in the beginning all things were good and things were very good, before the fall. Life before the fall was awesome. There's no sin, no corruption, no evil motives, no background checks, no centipedes, no cane spiders, no stupid things like that. This last week we had about an eight inch centipede in our house and um, it's like those little demon creature things. I wonder what they look like before the fall. I'm sure kids played with them and they were really bright in color and beautiful and, and shot up poison of like joy instead of like poison of like I don't know what. But we see this, and then my wife screams like at the top of her lungs, like, ah! And obviously we've seen a million, them a billion times. But they're still as ugly as ever, are they not? 
And thank you. Amen. Someone agrees with me. And so, and so Juliet screams, and then our littlest one, Alistair, who's six, just like screams and loses his mind. And I had to grab the slipper and kill this, this little demon and the, the, the fangs were doing, or the little tail. It was just disgusting. And, and just so you know, before the fall, none of that happened. None of that happened. Like, there was no creatures out to poison you, to get you lying, lay down with a lamb. You guys, there was no sin at all. We can't, we can't understand that. We really can't. But that's all it was. But then comes the slithery, sly serpent Satan himself there in the garden, attacking the word of God and the nature of God by questioning if God is good at all. Did God really say... The same is true today. Though Satan tempts in a thousand different ways, the bait beneath every temptation of Satan is to get you to believe that God is not as good as he says he is. That you cannot trust God at his word as much as you think you should. That God is holding out on you. That God isn't giving all of himself to you. And that God is trying to keep you from true enjoyment. And like Adam and Eve, we've all believed the same lie of the serpent. And because God is good, then he must punish sin. He has to. He is required to. And in doing so, he announces a curse on humanity because of man's sin that was passed down to you and passed down to me. It's called the curse of original sin. We've all inherited it. And just so you know, it's not like just because this happened a long, 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 long time ago that we are immune to it today, that we, the, the fall and the reality of the curse is just as real today as the first day when Adam and Eve sinned. The, the ashes of the curse still hang in the air. So we need a Savior. See, Christ's coming will not be wonderful to you if you are unwilling to see the nightmare that is sin. If you're unwilling to see what sin causes and what sin does and how we've sinned against God and Him alone, then at the end of the day, the coming of Christ, the advent of Jesus, Christmas time will make no sense at all. Yet weaved within the curse of a pro- is a promise of a Savior that our heel has been bruised. And it hurts having your heel bruised, doesn't it? You have someone like when you're shopping at Costco and they're like angry because the line is like three miles long and they hit you in the back of the heels of the cart. It hurts. But Satan's head will be crushed. Our heel may hurt a little, but Satan will ultimately be defeated. And that's the promise that is given to us. And since last week we looked at the promise of a Savior that will deliver us from Satan's lie and deliver us from our sin, today we look at the promises this Savior makes to you and to me. So we're going to move forward a few thousand years from Eden to now the own, God's own people, Israel, who are waiting for the coming arrival of this Messiah. And they've been waiting and they've been hoping with anticipation because this hope is meant to bring us hope and excitement, anticipation. Yet they've been given no details. And because they've lost sight of hope and the details through the prophet Isaiah here in Isaiah 9, God takes the same promise that was made there in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. And he's going to add to that promise vivid color and beautiful detail. In Isaiah 9, we read, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Those, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, out of them light has shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of this burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. If you have any church background, you know this verse, especially, these verses, especially verse 6. Probably put on your Christmas card one of these years, right? And probably put it, put it on there. It's something that's often read and talked about. But I think the background, the overarching theme behind this verse is often misunderstood. And so instead of kind of really unpacking and getting into the names of God here, which that could be a series in its own, I want us to step back, understand the background just before jumping into the text to look at the big picture of what's happening here in light of the promise of a Savior and the promises of this Savior. Israel at this time, when Isaiah speaks and writes these truths down, is going through an extremely difficult time of darkness. They've walked in darkness. They've believed the lie of Satan that God is not good, and they've doubted God's nature and character. And so Israel began to trust and their own strength. They trusted in their own strength so much, some of them took their eyes off of heaven and began to look to trust in other spiritual things in the world. Some of them got involved with necromancing, witchcraft, and sorcery. This is the people of God, the elect chosen people of God, who have turned to other spiritual mediums to find meaning and purpose and to find fulfillment. They believed in conspiracies. They no longer feared God, but they feared things of this world. In fact, they've left God and they've left his testimony. You're like, well, where did you get that from? One chapter before, chapter 8. One chapter before. That chapter 8 describes this, the state of Israel. And so the people of God, Israel, they've grew tired of waiting. They grew tired of it. They would rather grasp and grab onto what is immediate and what could be seen instead of looking to what is eternal and cannot be seen at this present moment. They lost hope in their God. They forgot God's word. They forgot God's promises. In fact, chapter 8, verse 22 says they followed earthly promises. There's a warning here for us. 
oh, the dangers our hearts run into in moments of weariness and hopelessness. The places our hearts go when we lose sight of God's promises and when we grab hold of earthly promises in the end will lead to a spiritual darkness. In fact, that's why we sin. I think that's why Israel sins. We forget the wickedness of our sin. We forget what our sin does to God. We complain. We grumble. We struggle to forgive other people. We look to the earth and looking at the earth for earthly wisdom and earthly promises. And this in part, honestly, not, not completely and entirely, but in part can add to depression. Can lead to anxiety can cause loss of hope, bring joylessness in our life. And the result of that is that we settle into a spiritual mediocrity that often can end again in darkness and despair. All because we forgot God's promise of a Savior. And I am not so naive to think that we gather and we sing songs and we wrap Christmas presents and we hang out in community and we do life with one another as Christians and we can get busy doing that. Have we forgotten Jesus? Have we taken our eyes off of the promises of the Savior and the Savior Himself? Israel did, and when they did, it resulted in them backsliding and going into a place of spiritual darkness. This is not the first time Israel did this. In Jeremiah 18, 15, God says, my people have forgotten me. They've forgotten me. Because when we follow the promises of the earth, it will lead to darkness and despair. And so God here is reminding Israel, and by reminding Israel, he is reminding you and I, don't just hold on to the vague promises, but believe in the explicit detail about the promises of what God is calling to us here. Isaiah chapter 9 is a call to remembrance. For them, a call to remember looking forward in faith. For us, a call to remember by looking back in faith at Jesus. I believe Isaiah chapter 9 is meant to simply stir in us a hopeful expectation of the goodness of God. That He is in fact our Savior. And that by Him stirring this hopeful expectation in us, it would result in us living lives that are holy. Lives that look like Jesus. And so we begin here where it says in verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time who brought her into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, He, God, has made a glorious way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Circle that, highlight that, underline that if you take notes. This significant Galilee of the nations. And here it is. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them. Light has shined. This reference of a promised coming is given in mind with a pin on the map of this place called Galilee. And we often just kind of glaze over this and don't even understand the significance, but it's interesting 
So Jesus was born in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, raised as a, as a child in Nazareth, the place where Jesus spent much of his ministry was in Galilee. So by Jesus fulfilling his ministry in Galilee, he is fulfilling the prophecy, the prophecy here. It was a present reality for the people then of Israel that would lead to a future prediction in Jesus. Galilee is in the northern end of Israel, above Jerusalem, which was really the hub and the main city where, it was, where the temple was and where the people of God worshipped. And if you can use your imagination, Galilee uh, is wedged between sea and mountains, actually very similar to Kona, where you have east of Galilee, you have the Sea of Galilee, and the west of Galilee, you have these vast mountains. The reason why there are gloomy days, there are difficult days that are being spoken of here in Galilee is because Galilee experienced horrible things from armies. Armies would often come through the north and hug the coastline going right through Galilee before they would wage war and attack Jerusalem. On their way in, they would rape women, children, destroy and steal and burn down villages there in Galilee. And they would go and fight their war in Jerusalem, and whether they lost, because Galilee could not defend itself. And so they go fight their war, and guess what they did on the way back? Whether they won the war or lost the war, come back through Galilee. And just as they're beginning to rebuild and they're seeing light at the end of the tunnel, they would be flattened and decimated again. Galilee was in darkness. Galilee experienced the bloody garments, the gloom, and the anguish. And in the least likely place, in the most embattled, scarred area at that time, here God is making a wonderful promise, and God is saying, Light is coming. Galilee, it's not over. Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. God will shine his glorious light on those who are in darkness. And you guys know this darkness will not win. Darkness does not have the final word. Light is coming for you, Israel, and in a very real, real way. Light has come, and Jesus undoes what sin and evil has caused for so many in Galilee. In Galilee, Jesus turns water into a wine and a wedding in the region of Galilee. In the region of Galilee, Jesus cast out the legion of demons that was in the man. You remember the story? The legion of demons in the man? Cast the demons out. They go into swine. The swine jump off the cliff. People get upset at Jesus because they just destroyed their livelihood. But Jesus did that in Galilee. In Galilee, Jesus healed thousands of sickness. In Galilee, Jesus calmed the wind and the seas. He filled the disciples' nets with fish. He raised a girl from the dead. He fed thousands with five loaves and two fish. And in Galilee, he even forgave sinners who were in darkness of their sins. Light is coming for you, Galilee. That light is Jesus. And the promise that is given is that light will 
overcome darkness. You guys know darkness does not stand a chance. The kingdom of darkness stands no chance against the kingdom of light, of God's glorious kingdom. And God is making it clear and preparing the people for what the Messiah will do. That the people who have walked in darkness will see a great light. And from Galilee, Jesus' blessing will multiply to the nations. Just look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nations and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. If you are in darkness, if you are overwhelmed, if you've trusted in other promises, believed Satan's lie, if you've been neglected, abused, if you feel hopeless, if you're stuck in the rut of a certain sin, if you're an outcast, or even if you're suicidal. This promise is for you. God is near to the brokenhearted. John chapter 1, verse 1, John opens up and he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. When we're speaking of the light here that pierces the darkness, we're not just speaking about some spiritual light. We're speaking about life, eternal life, satisfying life, water type of life that if you drink from it, you will never thirst again. Verse 5 of John 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome the light. When you receive the light of Jesus, it becomes your life. And in darkness and despair, what you need most is to be reminded of the advent of Jesus. You don't need something to do. You don't need a five-step program. You need to gaze at the glorious light of Jesus and allow His light to shine in the dark recesses and cavities of your heart that have yet to experience His life. Light has come. Light will conquer. So much so that even the darkness cannot understand or comprehend it. And so you guys, I want you to know this right now. Jesus' advent is not, about, is not for people who've put their life together. If you're here, you're not a Christian, maybe you don't know Jesus, or maybe you know about Christianity, and you're thinking, oh, this is cool, I'm sitting in a Christmas Eve worship service with all these holy religious people who have their life together. That's a, not, that's a joke. None of us have our life together in here this morning. We all need Jesus, and Jesus did not come for those who think they are well. He came for those who know they are sick. Jesus came for those who are in darkness because they're the ones who are light. In fact, the religious people who thought they were in the light, the religious people who thought they were righteous and good were not worthy to receive the light of the life of men. Jesus came for those who have their life that is a mess. Those who've experienced darkness, those who need his healing touch, those who need to experience his presence and his life-changing power found in the gospel. It's a promise for you. But Jesus isn't just a light, though he is, we just promised to you, and his life is the light of men. Jesus is also a king. 
What good is a light that light has no authority? Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is the king who will sit on David's throne. And as the king, he will be the one who will fill the promise God made in Genesis 3. He will crush the head of the serpent. His light will shine and give light to those in darkness. And as a result, this king will usher in peace, a peace and a kingdom that will never end. He will destroy darkness. This king will forgive us of our sin and we will be made righteous and we will know and we will love and we will worship our king. Those are the promises God has made to you. And those are promises we cannot keep or do for ourselves. Like as good as these promises are, notice there's no power for you to do any of these promises that are given. Can you give yourself light? Can you make yourself king? Can you bring in, usher in peace? See, we need Jesus, we need his light, and we need his kingship because we, we can't even crush the head of the serpent. You don't have power over Satan. Sometimes we walk around with a swagger like, oh, I'm going to say, really? When Jesus has to remind Peter, hey, Satan is out to sift you like wheat. What does that mean? Jack you in the face. That's what he's there to do. That's my Greek version of that understanding, by the way. It's not an inspired translation, but it's true nonetheless. Peter, Satan wants to crush you. If anything, we are a mosquito splattered in the windshield of a Toyota lifted truck. We don't stand a chance against Satan. You don't stand a chance against him. But Jesus crushes the head of the serpent. In Jesus, we are victorious. Because a new king has taken his throne. The increase of his government will expand to no end, including Satan being pushed off of his earthly throne. We need Jesus because we can't give ourselves our own light. Guys, light comes into the darkness. Light invades the darkness, but those in darkness cannot find their way to the light. That's why his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path because we are blind and unable to see and until Jesus gives us life to our dead souls, we are never able to give ourselves the spiritual life that Jesus talks about. In fact, Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 where he says, God has said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what does the light of Jesus do? Gives us knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A lot of people are like, I've seen the light. I've experienced the glory of God. Okay, what did you see when you did? If you saw Jesus' face, if you experienced the glory of Jesus, when his light shine on you, is Jesus the center of your affection? Then yes, you experienced the life-transforming light of Jesus. If you haven't, then you've seen another light, which is a false light. 
We need Jesus to give us his light. King Jesus will bring peace that you and I could never bring. Like, are you able, truly, honestly able, to just, like, bring peace to your own life? So, like, that noisy neighbor, are you at peace in your soul with your noisy neighbor? When you get behind the wheel, especially these last few days, like, are you at peace with the person driving in front of you? I know I'm not. I'm like raging. I'm like, I, I hate my neighbor in these moments. I'm, I'm angry. I don't even know them, but I'm saying things to them that I should not be saying, at least in my head. I'm saying those things. We get angry with a spouse. Did you guys know that even the United States of America, since its inception in 1776, has only had 21 years of peace? The most prosperous, supposedly, nation with the best technology, best systems, best structures, 21 years of peace. We cannot bring peace. The best of governments cannot bring peace. We need Jesus to be our peace. In fact, if you look at verse 6 here at the end, he is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. If you need peace, look to the Prince, Jesus, and he will give you peace. No one else can give you peace. And his peace, guys, I love his peace. It's not a temporary peace. His peace will have no end. Unending peace. There won't be any bullets flying. There won't be any tension. No enemy. No war. It's a forever type of peace. And Israel, in hearing this promise, is going to be reminded through every failing king and every citizen of that nation that would sin, they need the promise of a transcendent, glorious king because we have no power to do any of these promises. But God does. God has power, and God will do it. Look at verse 7. So good. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And here it is. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is going to do it. All of these promises in here are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. These promises are real. In fact, many of them were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus as the son and as the child of God, living a perfect death life, dying a sacrificial death, the death that is one that we deserve, rising again on the third day and being seated at the right hand of the Father from sin. And God says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You will have peace. You will have the light of the life of men. The blood of the garments will be no more in his kingdom and reign and rule shall have no one. Even sin ultimately will be obliterated. Great promises. Why do I still struggle with sin then? Why do we still struggle with darkness and despair? These promises are true. God said he would do it. 
It was because our salvation is not a flat salvation. A lot of times when we talk about salvation, we say, oh, I've been saved past sin, right? Saved past. I've been saved. Our salvation actually has three tenses. Our salvation is in the past tense, our salvation is in the present tense, and our salvation is in the future tense. Have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. So past tense of our salvation, that, that is that we've been saved in the past, that we've been completely saved from the punishment of our sin. That if you believe, love, and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, your sin is totally paid for. And you're not kind of saved. You're not halfway saved. You, God doesn't meet you halfway and say, all right, come here. You better, you better meet your end of the deal. You are completely, totally, entirely forgiven through Jesus' blood on the cross if you trust in him. But I still sin. Yeah, that's why Jesus died on the cross. But even though you still sin, Jesus declared to telestai. That is to say, it is finished. Your sin is completely atoned for. And once you are saved, yes, you are always saved because whoever Jesus buys with his blood, he will keep until the end. He loses none of his home. God doesn't lose his children. Even if his sheep wanders, he goes after them and brings them back into the fold. Your sin is paid for and you are forgiven. Your past sin. So we've been saved from our sin past tense because a child and a son was given to us, and we are being saved presently. I'm just getting this language from 1 Corinthians 15. You can look it up later. We are being saved from sin's present power over our lives day by day. You guys know there's still residual sin around you and me, and still residual sin within us that God needs to save us from, even as Christians. So we are being saved by the Holy Spirit empowering us, by the Word of God dwelling in us, by the Gospel carrying us and sustaining us. And it's easy to focus on that we have been saved, yet we still often give ourselves over to sin and we believe the lie that God is not good. But we are being reminded here that it's not just about our past sins, but that Jesus on the cross and a child being given to us is an ever-present reality to save us from the sin in the now. So that by doing so, you and I would be able to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. And finally, we are being saved. Or we will be saved, rather, a future tense of our salvation. You guys sense that, that tension? Like, I know I'm saved, but I'm not totally delivered. Like, there's, yeah. Because that's the reality. All of us live in this tension of the middle. Where we are being saved, but the, the gloriousness of us entering into the fullness of our salvation has not yet come. It's the already not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has already come in Jesus when the child was born and his son was given, but it's not yet. In the first advent, Jesus came as a baby. And the second advent that is still to come, Jesus will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the kingdom has been inaugurated, but you guys, the kingdom has not been consummated yet. 
and he will righteously judge all things. He will bring ultimate peace to those who have experienced the light of his life. And hear me, God will forever abolish sin and then we will be saved from the presence. We'll be saved even from the influence, from being surrounded by sin. And he will deliver us out of that. And we aren't there yet, but this is our hope. And so if you've lost sight of that, be reminded, know that God is not done with you yet. You are still yet to experience the fullness of his promise when he comes again in his second advent or brings us to be with him. Just look at the already not yet of verse 6 and then verse 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Already. That's, that's happened already. Not yet. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Your struggle against strife and sin will not last forever. Salvation is coming. Jesus is our hope. And our present hope then must be anchored in the past advent and the future advent of Jesus. I want you to know, guys, when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. This is your hope. Look at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we trust that you will do what you set to accomplish. May your light shine into our hearts on this Christmas Eve. May your light pierce our own darkness of sin. For those who need to be comforted by your light, God, we pray that your life would be a light of men. We pray, Jesus, that you would do a work in our souls, that you would pierce the darkness and even the areas of sin and things that we've hidden in our heart from you, God, that your spirit would bring that to the light and that we would just confess that to you, God. that we would feel sick, that we would mourn over our sin, and that we would gaze upon you piercing our darkness, and then we would rejoice and celebrate, and that, Jesus, you would be our joy. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you've given us Jesus, who is a wonderful counselor to us, who is our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace, in whose name we pray. Amen.